Hey, everybody. If you've been looking for love at first sight, it's closer than you think. It can be found at your local shelter. So this June 7th to June 9th, join the Pedigree Adoption Drive and the Pedigree brand will reimburse your dog adoption fees nationwide. Pedigree knows that bringing a dog into your home not only opens their heart, it can open yours too. Visit pedigree.com slash adoption dash drive to learn more and see full terms and conditions. Hey everyone, Homes.com knows having the right agent can make or break your home search. That's why they provide home shoppers with an agent directory that gives you a detailed look at each agent's experience, like the number of closed sales in a specific neighborhood, average price range, and more. It lets you easily connect with all the agents in the area you're searching so you can find the right agent with the right experience and ultimately the right home for you. Homes.com, we've done your homework. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh, and there's Chuck, and Jerry's here too, but she's hiding behind us. And this is Stuff You Should Know. That's right. I think I have already titled this episode, A Dispassionate Look at Roe v. Wade. Yeah. Akin to our episode on kissing or roller coasters, <laughs> right? Well, roller coasters is pretty appropriate. Yeah, for sure, because <laughs> it's been a heck of a ride since 1973, huh? That's right. So uh, just so folks know, we're going to just sort of take a look at the case, <clears throat> the original case itself. And this idea was hatched um, quite a few weeks ago. And obviously, we kind of sped that process along. And we'll talk about that toward the end. Oh, okay, cool. Does that sound good? Yeah, we're we're doing this episode apropos of nothing at all. We just decided to try <laughs> to do it finally, right? That's right. So um, we're talking about Roe v. Wade. It's a Supreme Court case, again, from 1973. I think it was um, published at the very beginning of 1973. And it basically said um, all you states, which at the time most of the states in the late 60s, early 70s, had bans on abortion, some of them almost total, uh, the Supreme Court said all those laws are unconstitutional. We have to re- refigure this. And <clears throat> it was the culmination of like um, a whole process, a whole bunch of lawsuits were kind of filed at the same time about the same thing. Um, but it was in no way, shape, or form less sweeping because, you know, it was kind of in the zeitgeist. It's what people were talking about. I think it took, I read it, it took both sides of the um, abortion issue by surprise. It was that kind of sweeping and that much of a, a complete course reversal for the United States as far as how we approached abortion goes. Right. I think it's a good way to say it. Uh, abortion is nothing, and we'll probably do, uh, I mean, I think we've long wanted to do just a full episode on abortion, and so we'll probably work that one in at some point in the near future. But uh, abortion has always been around. Uh, it's usually always been regulated in some form or another, um, usually in what we'll call the third trimester, but we'll get to that stuff later as well, mm-hmm. uh, or later in this episode. Um, but in the 19th and 20th centuries, there were no federal laws on the books, and it was left to states to kind of come up with their own interpretations of uh, what was kind of usually uh, originally based on English common law. Mm-hmm. And beginning in the 1800s is when a lot of the states started really restricting or outright banning abortion. And I believe in the 1960s, there were not many states left at all uh, that didn't have uh, bans or restrictions on abortion. 
Yeah, and the the 19th century um, was uh, kind of a pivotal point for um, the the concept of abortion in the United States for a couple of reasons. There's a historian named Leslie J. Reagan uh, who wrote When Abortion Was a Crime. Um, And she wrote that in 1857, the American Medical Association, which had just been founded, basically said, hey, we need to start a campaign to outlaw abortion, in part, uh, historians say, to help wrestle um, control of women's health away from midwives and to help consolidate basically all aspects of health, including that under doctors. That's one thing that people say uh, led to the rise of abortion laws, anti-abortion laws in the United States. And then there's there's on both sides there's allegations that <clears throat> some of the earliest proponents for for or against abortion um, were racially motivated too. On the um, on the uh, the the proponent the abortion proponent side, they say that some of these earliest um, laws were basically white Protestant Americans starting to get nervous at all of the immigrants that were coming over and saying we need to step up you know, the birth rate among white Protestant Americans. And um, one good way to do that is to outlaw abortion. And then the, um, the anti-abortion side says, no, no, uh, that may or may not be true, but you guys were eugenicists and you actually wanted abortion so that you could control um, undesirable, meaning non-white populations right. in the United States. So both sides are slinging mud all the way back starting in the 19th century. It just kind of gets worse from there. Yeah, and of course you're using that terminology uh, because they didn't have terms like pro-choice and pro-life at that point. Yeah, but I also see um, it seems to be more um, academic to call it pro-abortion and anti-abortion because pro-life is such a, uh, it's such a loaded term. It's like, oh, oh you don't like life? You know, if you're if you're if you're a pro-abortion, you, that doesn't mean that you're against life. So I saw a, a pro-abortion and anti-abortion kind of settling that dispute. Well, and the both sides have also taken those terms and bent them to their own will uh, mm-hmm. in more recent years by saying things like, "We're not pro-abortion; we're pro-choice." And uh, other people saying, we're not anti-choice, we're pro-life. And then other people saying, you're pro-birth, not pro-life. <laughs> so it's uh, this sort of leads us into what I like to call the central mess of this the whole debate, really. Um, and this is as it relates to, you know, legally speaking, there is a larger ethical and moral debate, which, you know, obviously plays a huge part. You can't um, remove that, but we're here to talk about the legal case. But legally speaking, the all caps huge mess, which has always been around and always will mm-hmm. be around, yeah. is that nobody, doctors and certainly lawyers and justices and judges have never been able to agree on what life means and when that starts. Right, And that is the central crux and the central mess of it all that will never get solved and has never been solved because it's unsolvable. Um, There is no definition that everyone agrees on. And even the justices in the original uh, Roe v. Wade case uh, admit to this and say, you know, doctors don't agree on this. We certainly can't decide this. Right. So that created this this quagmire and this uh, many-pronged debate. Um, over, you know, when is it okay, if ever? Is it a crime? When is it a crime? 
How severe is that crime? What mm-hmm. about the mother and her health? What about mm-hmm. the health of a fetus? And who decides all this stuff? Yeah, and we've, I mean, despite not knowing and maybe not being able to know when life actually begins, um, there have been attempts over the years at, at um, abortion regulations that kind of try to take a stab at it. And one of them was quickening. So this is an early 19th century one. And quickening is a term Highlander for Highlander 2? For <laughs> right, for yeah, for that moment when you first see Highlander two and your life changes forever for the better. That's right. No, it's actually when the um, the mother first feels the fetus uh, moving inside of her. They call that quickening, and it's like a super nineteenth century agrarian farmy um, kind of weird, almost animal term. But that's that's what they called it, and that's when they defined the beginning of life, and that's when they said, okay, after that, we're regulating abortion after a quickening. That's that was the first attempt, and that kind of um, that kind of underscores like the the attempts th- since then, which are basically based on this idea of viability, like if that fetus was removed from the mom, what chance would it have to survive on its own? And if the, if a doctor, a consensus of doctors say, after about this time or at about this state or about this stage in pregnancy, a fetus could probably survive on its own, um, that has helped kind of define where uh, where abortion regulation begins and ends. That's right. So, um, the Supreme Court back then in the 1970s grappled with this. And like I said, they they flat out said, I mean, here's the quote, uh, when those trained in the respective disciplines of medicine, philosophy and theology are unable to arrive at any consensus as to when life technically begins, uh, the judiciary at this point in the development of a man's knowledge um, is not in a position to speculate as to the answer. So they, you know, at least the Supreme Court has flat out said over the years, like, hey, we can't define this. Um, that would have made it even all the trickier if they weighed in saying, well, here's what we think. Right. So the upshot of all this is we don't know when life begins, but we do know that there are plenty of women out there who don't who get pregnant and don't want to carry the fetus to full term. They don't want to have that child for one reason or another. Um, so the government decided that it needed to step in and figure out how to balance those two things. They said that the state has an invested uh, interest in protecting the life of the unborn while also protecting the interests of a woman's right to choose whether she has a child or not. And they um, basically took a bunch of plates they put them on the end of poles. <laughs> they started spinning them. They got on a unicycle <laughs> and rode out on a high wire uh-huh. over the Grand Canyon. That's right. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a good time for a break with that image in people's heads. And we will talk about uh, the case itself and who Roe was and who Wade was right after this. Hey there, are you thirsty? Well, before you take a sip, have you stopped to think about what's in your water? Many conventional bottled waters contain PFAS, harmful substances known as forever chemicals. But 
you can drink water as clean as nature intended. Richard's rainwater collects 100% pure, refreshing drops of rain. Yes, it really is rain, everybody. This rain is caught clean before it hits the ground or becomes polluted with pesticides and contaminants commonly found in groundwater. Yep, Richard's rainwater is naturally pure with no need for harsh chemicals or additives. That means no added fluoride, no chlorine, no forever chemicals, no microplastics, no nothing. And you can enjoy the clean taste of Richard's still rainwater and the long-lasting cold-pressured bubbles of Richard's sparkling rainwater. Just visit richardsrainwater.com to find a retailer near you. That's richardsrainwater.com. And we even have a special offer, don't we, Josh? Yeah, text STUFF to 2512-928887 and you'll get $2 off a 12-pack case of Richard's rainwater. Sip the sky. Hey there, everybody. Here's some bonus stuff you should know. This time it's about traveling to Orlando for business. Orlando has tons of places to host your conferences and meetings. Dr. Michael Edwards, CEO of Ocean Insight, said it best. Orlando is as much a business capital as an entertainment one. And when the day is done, you can kick off each evening at one of 46 Michelin-rated restaurants. What's not to love? So check out Orlando, where the possibilities for business travel are unbelievably real. Learn more at orlandoforbusiness.com. All right, game off. Let's pause here to talk more about Monopoly Go. Because in Monopoly Go, you can team up with your friends for time tournaments where you work together to build up each other's boards. It's very nice. That's right. And the more you win together, the more awesome prizes you unlock. And there's so much to get. I'm talking about unique stickers that you can trade with friends to complete albums for big prizes, cool new playing pieces to travel the boards with, or hilarious emojis for taunting friends when you smash their buildings or heist their vaults. Plus, Monopoly Go feels new and exciting every day with constantly changing tournaments and challenges, like digging for treasure or a robot pachinko machine. And there's always new timed events that help you win big, like massive multipliers for everything you win or rent frenzies. That's right. There's always something fun to discover in Monopoly Go. So get off the bench and go download it now for free on Google Play or the App Store. Game on! You know, true love is always being excited from the first moment you see one another. And every time after that, it's taking long walks together in the summer or gazing longingly into each other's eyes and watching their tail wag when they chase a squirrel in the yard. Well, the pedigree brand asked about believing in love at first sight. And honestly, the answer is yes. Uh, As everyone knows from listening to this show, we have pulled all of our dogs off the street that Emily and I have had over the years, either right off the street or through a local shelter and working with them. And they've all become valued family members. And we think they've appreciated it, too. Yeah, Chuck, there is a pedigree loyalty survey that found that 90% of first-time dog owners report having a dog improved at least one of their relationships, and 80% of first-time dog owners are overwhelmingly more likely to have made at least one new connection as a result of getting a dog. And 95% of all dog owners say that the bond they have with their dogs is closer than they ever expected. Not a big surprise. That's true. We all know that adopting a dog can lead to a lifetime meaningful connection and real love can exist between a pet and a pet parent. You got that straight. Pedigree is committed to helping more dogs find loving homes. Opening your home to a dog can help open your heart. And Love at First Sight is closer than you think because it's available at your local dog shelter. Yeah, very important point. You can find love at first sight with the Pedigree Adoption Drive. 
from June 7th to June 9th. And the Pedigree brand will reimburse your dog adoption fees nationwide. That's right. So just visit pedigree.com slash adoption dash drive to learn more and see full terms and conditions. All right. So if you're going to talk about Roe v. Wade, you got to talk about Roe and Wade. Um, <laughs> Roe, and I think, you know, I'm not sure that a lot of people have really studied this. They know may know a lot about the case, but um, I had never studied it to this degree. No, me either. Until we did this. And it's just good information to have, uh, especially these days. So Roe was Jane Roe. Uh, obviously a made-up name uh, like Jane Doe, and they usually do use Jane Doe. Uh, but when there are a bunch of Doe cases on the docket, uh, and especially in this one, there was another Doe on the docket that had to do with abortion, uh, Doe uh, v. Bolton, which we'll talk about uh, as well a little bit, uh, they just change it to Roe. It's that simple. Uh, but we do know, uh, and we've known for decades now, who Jane Roe really was, and that was a woman uh, named Norma McCorvey in her 20s in Texas. Yeah, so at the time, Texas had um, one of the most comprehensive bans on abortion. It was basically, um, it, it said, if if the fetus is malformed, their words, if the mother, um, if the mother's life is in danger, or I think if, um, if the, what was the last one? I think if, if it's the product of a rape, then those are the three, different criteria that an abortion could possibly be um, carried out under, performed under. And um, that meant that since Norma McCorvey didn't didn't fit any of those criteria, but still didn't want the kid, that she was looking for an abortion but couldn't get one in Texas. She also didn't have very much money, um, and so she couldn't travel out of state like a lot of more well-to-do women in her situation would have done. So she um, started to get desperate because, I, I mean, I didn't say this, Chuck, but she had already had two kids. This was her third child. She wasn't married to the man who um, she had gotten pregnant by, and in fact was um, a lesbian who was in a committed relationship, I think, at the time. Yeah. So, yeah, she really and, did not want to have this kid. Yeah, she had given the other two up for adoption, just uh, so everyone knows. It's not like she had two kids at home. Um, she had given the other two up, and I think one to a family member, and mm -hmm. I'm not sure about the other one. Definitely adopted the second one. The first one was raised by her parents. Right, which is also adoption. Uh, but... She is now in a position where she doesn't uh, want to have this third one and mm. was put in touch uh, uh, with an attorney named uh, Linda Coffey and Coffey's uh, partner, Sarah Weddington, two recent law school grads who were who were looking for a case like this. And this is where uh, – I don't know if you've seen the, the great Alexander Payne movie, Citizen Ruth, uh, but it's a, a, a movie about basically uh, the Roe v. Wade uh, – debate with Laura Dern and it's his first movie and it's great and it's a, a great comedic satire but uh, <laughs> wait what you haven't seen it no it's comedic oh yeah it's a it's a Alexander Payne satire is it a musical comedy no 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 it's just a, a movie <laughs> uh basically you know Laura Dern is the the central figure who is a drug addict who is pregnant and gets co-opted by both sides like they both have right. think they have found the golden case to make their case. And uh, in true Alexander Payne fashion, like, you know, both sides are played 
uh, rather satirically, and uh, there are no um, no winners really. <laughs> uh, that sounds great movie, like though. this one. That sounds like real life for sure. Yeah, but that that basically is what's happened. So she was, um, you know, later says that she was kind of co opted and manipulated, uh, which we'll get into by these two uh, women who were her attorneys. Um, later in life, she became a born-again Christian, and this is when most of that stuff out about the attorneys manipulating her came out, and after mm-hmm. being pro-choice for her whole life, uh, was pro-life, and then uh, came out later almost like a deathbed confession and said, you know what, they paid me. Uh, the quote was, it was a mutual thing, I took their money, and this is, to be clear, the uh, the pro-life side paid her. Uh, to reverse course is what she says, at least. Uh, it was a mutual thing. I took their money and they put me in front of the cameras, told me what to say, and that's what I said. I did it well because I was a good actress. Yeah, and there's a there's a um, a lot of people who argue that she wasn't ever really pro-choice either. Um, that that she was, um, and Ed helped us with this one. That she was basically more of a mercenary who looked out for herself. And I've read quotes from her that basically say as much. Yeah. That she she didn't really care about this whole huge um, case that she was the center of. She just wanted an abortion. And that was the thing that she said that she was manipulated about, that Coffee and Weddington basically talked her out of getting an abortion because they were worried that if she didn't um, if she didn't have the child by the time the um, the Supreme Court heard this case, she would no longer have standing. Because at the time, the courts used to rule that if you weren't actively pregnant, if you'd already had the kid, your case would just get thrown out because you weren't pregnant anymore, so who cares? And we'll talk a little more about that in a minute, but that was why um, they, they supposedly uh, talked her out of it. They say they definitely didn't talk her out of it, but at the same time, they didn't help her find an abortion, which is what she was after when she contacted them in the first place. Right. So, uh, if you're wondering why th- uh, this happened, she was, I believe, pregnant in 1969, and this case wasn't uh, rendered until 1973. Mm-hmm. It's because a lot of stuff happened in 1971. Uh, they were going to begin hearings in December of that year, uh, when both justices, Hugo Black and John Marshall Harlan the second, uh, retired from poor health. That was in, you know, they died. They both died before the end of 1971. So yeah. they were definitely in poor health. <laughs> yeah, uh, the, the prophecy and, turned out to be correct. Well, and just crazy timing. I mean, I don't think we've seen, I mean, definitely haven't seen anything like that since then. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for two justices to retire, you know, within days of each other is uh, pretty monumental. Sure. Um, and so President Nixon, of course, was looking his chops and appointed William uh, Winquist. I'm always having <laughs> trouble with that. Winquist? <laughs> Rehnquist. I know. I just go— Just pretend like the H isn't there. <laughs> I go all Prince's Pride in that moment. <laughs> uh, and Lewis F. Powell Jr., mm-hmm. nominated on the same day in October of 71, uh, came in, and because these Supreme Court cases take so long to get through— um, they decided basically after a lot of hand-wringing that even though they had begun hearing arguments on that case, that they would redo it all uh, with the nine justices instead of the seven. Yeah, so this was October of 1972 when the case that was eventually decided started in earnest. Um, So yeah, by this time, um, uh, Norma McCorvey had already had her child. Her child was 
two and a half years old and already uh, had been uh, given up for adoption. Um, but they still ruled that she had standing. That it's essentially it was not moot, right? No, it wasn't. So, so that, that's um, – Let's just talk about that real quick. So, like I was saying, like courts used to rule that if you weren't actually pregnant, you couldn't have standing in a pregnancy-related case, even if you'd filed the initial lawsuit while you were pregnant. You weren't pregnant any longer, so whatever. So, the Supreme Court, one of the things they did in Roe was establish that um, pregnancy could not be rendered moot because— Uh, As they put it, pregnancy provides a classic justification for a conclusion of non-mootness, which apparently is a real legal term, (laughs) because it says it could truly be capable of repetition, yet evading review, meaning that any time you, like an appellate said, hey, these guys passed me over for lack of standing because I'm not pregnant anymore, um, following the letter of the law, the appellate court would be like, well, we can't hear it because they're right. You don't have standing right. anymore. So the Supreme Court finally said, forget that. Pregnancy is a recurring thing. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a transitory thing, but it's actually a thing, so we need to be able to review it. So they said, yes, if you uh, are a woman who has been pregnant uh, or even could be pregnant, you have standing in, in cases like this. Yeah, because basically they would never hear a case because right. it takes way longer than nine months to like get this thing up to the court system and review it. Yeah, and I mean, all the initial prosecutor would have to do would be, like, file a bunch of motions yeah. to delay it for nine months, and then the case gets automatically thrown out. And they even say, like, our law should not be that rigid. So that was a big thing that they did in, in the uh, Roe um, uh, opinion. For a brief sidetrack into levity, I cannot hear the word moot without thinking of that great Saturday Night Live sketch with Jesse Jackson years ago. The question is moot. <laughs> did you ever see that one? No, uh uh-uh. It was a game show called The Question is Moot, and Jesse Jackson was the game show host. And basically, he would just, he would lob out a big question, and anytime someone would go to answer it, he would just interrupt him and say, The question is moot. (laughs) And like my brother and I said, The question is moot to each other over and over for a period of years when we were kids. It was pretty great. No, I've never seen that one. Uh, All right. So back to Roe v. Wade. Funniness now over. Yeah. we have to talk about a few of these cases because, you know, we tend to think of Roe v. Wade as this sort of this vacuum single case. But there were many cases that went into um, kind of shaping what ended up happening, um, the first of which was probably um, United States versus Vuich, which was in 1971 when a doctor in D.C., Dr. Vuich, uh, was performing abortions and said – Uh, and was prosecuted for doing so under D.C. law because D.C. law said um, necessary – it can only be done if it was necessary for the preservation of the mother's life or health, key, uh, under the direction of a competent licensed practitioner of medicine. And he said this is really unconstitutionally vague of Mm -hmm. of what that means. Like what does health of the mother even mean? And a really key thing came out of that, right? Yeah, they they said, nope, it's actually not uh, overly vague. It actually makes sense. But they ruled in their opinion, so they ruled against Voich um, and in favor of D.C.'s abortion law. But they did say, but we could see how health could include something like a mother's psychological health or the impact an unwanted child might have on a family. That was new, and that was huge. So that was a precedent. And we, we saw in the Freedom of the Press uh, episode that sometimes justices will like rule against the person, but then will establish a foundation for a later case by 
by just mentioning something right. like that. And that's what they did in that case. Uh, another few cases that uh, had a big impact were, uh, the first two were Meyer uh, versus Nebraska in 1923, which was post-World War One. There was a large anti-German sentiment. So they basically enacted laws that said, you can't teach foreign languages in school anymore. Only mm -hmm. English is the only language you can teach. Uh, and then Pierce versus Society of Sisters, uh, which was based on, in 1925, based on an Oregon case where uh, the state of Oregon said all kids have to go to public school. You can't go to private school uh, because of the Oregon Compulsory Education Act. So those two factor in and how they affected how the 14th Amendment and the 9th Amendment were framed in terms of Roe. And it gets yeah, a little confusing, but... It's a little wonky. Yeah. But the upshot of it is that the, the, um, in 1923 and 1925, the Supreme Court established a precedent by saying, we're going to start in interpreting the Ninth Amendment, which basically says, even though we mentioned some stuff in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights specifically, that doesn't mean that other stuff isn't constitutionally protected. Like, there are other rights, too, that we didn't mention. Right. Figure it out, Supreme Court. It's basically what the framers were saying, or the, <laughs> the Ninth Amendment writers. And then the 14th Amendment uh, e um, grants equal protection under the law with due process. It's called the Due Process Clause. And so they put these two things together, and they basically said that, um, th that, that the court now has the ability to interpret whether something not mentioned in the Constitution is a constitutionally protected right. That's what yeah. those two cases did. And that established a longstanding precedent that gave the Supreme Court that ability. Sure, because the Constitution was written in the 18th and 19th centuries. Mm -hmm. And obviously there were not things like the internet back then and all kinds of things right. that we have to decide upon these days. So, But if you're an originalist, then that's great because that just means <laughs> that you can overturn the existence of the internet by outlawing it if you're a Supreme Court justice. That's right. What did Thomas Jefferson think? Uh, <laughs> Griswold versus Connecticut was the other case in 1965. And they used that, uh, I don't think we said that was the doctrine was ended up being called substantive, jeez, oh, here we go, Sub substantive due process. Can I take a crack at it? Sure. Uh, I would say substantive due process. Substantive, yeah. That, yeah. You know why? Because that's correct. <laughs> <laughs> I knew I was tripping over it, uh, a very obvious thing there, substantive, substantive due process. Let's just right. call it SDP. Uh, <laughs> so in 65 with Griswold versus Connecticut, they use that SDP uh, doctrine to say that Americans also have a right to privacy mm -hmm. because that's not mentioned in the Constitution either. But like, I mean, this kind of opened up all what we would call like the bedroom cases, which is, hey, we can't um, legislate what happens in someone's bedroom. Right. That's that's a right, inherent right to privacy. And that covers and that ended up covering According to SCOTUS, marriage, procreation, contraception, family relationships, child rearing, and education, which was sort of the basis of everything in terms of Roe. Yeah, and Griswold versus Connecticut was not really the first case that tested that. I think Loving versus West Virginia, which um, the Supreme Court overruled laws that, that um, kept uh, interracial couples from marrying. Mm -hmm. Um, but but Griswold versus Connecticut was short on the heels of that, and it was over birth control rights. But also that led the that right to privacy, that substantive due process doctrine, kind of led to the creation of. Um, 
led to everything from the the um, support for gay marriage, um, overturning laws that ban gay sex. I mean, all sorts of different stuff. It just basically said there's really private things in people's everyday lives that the government has no business or no say in. So we're just going to leave that alone. But there's a big problem with that, Chuck, and this is a huge problem, at least as far as law goes. The idea that Americans have a right to privacy guaranteed by the Constitution Mm -hmm. is technically a legal fiction. If you're an originalist and you read the the, the Constitution literally and you say, okay, what would the founders think about this? What were they thinking at the time they wrote this document? Then they would say— They didn't put right to privacy in there, and maybe they do have a right to privacy, Americans do, but it's not in the Constitution, meaning that it could be overturned Mm -hmm. uh, later by a court because it's not constitutionally protected. That is what put Roe v. Wade on shaky ground from the beginning, is that it was argued and decided as a right to privacy case. And again, privacy in this sense is not privacy like you and I would think of, like, you know, nobody looking over your shoulder, but more right. um, the an American's ability and freedom to make decisions about what affects their own personal life without government intervention, that term of privacy. But by basing it on that, it set Roe v. Wade up on rather shaky legal foundation. Uh, and that was actually a, um, kind of a, a, a pet argument of uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Yeah, I mean, uh, she was on record as saying that she thought it was on shaky ground and for good reason and that it should have never been decided on those grounds and uh, was was certainly not saying that she was pro-life, uh, but was on record as saying that uh, it, it tried to do too much, too sweeping, too fast, and the way it should have gone about uh, was, you know, X, Y, Z, and uh, – so who knows what have happened, uh, what would have happened had she, um, you know, had to cover one of these cases. But well, she, well, she was at the time. One of her cases was was on its way to the Supreme Court, and it was an abortion case. It just got um, decided, or, or it was resolved because right. the Air Force changed its policy. So she could have been the one who oh, argued yeah. the abortion case in front of the Supreme Court. Yeah, I'm really curious how that would have panned out. But the well, the way that she suggested it should have been done is rather um, basing it on the right to privacy. It should have been based on the uh, equal protection clause of the Fourteenth Amendment, right? Because she her her logic was that by forcing women to be pregnant, the government is forcing a condition on women that men are not subject to, right? And that that is by definition gender discrimination, which is. Uh, protected against by the Equal Protection Clause. So that's in the Constitution. So what what Ruth Bader Ginsburg was saying, if you had argued and decided Roe on the basis of the Equal Protection Clause, it would have been virtually ironclad from day one. And it wasn't. It was on shaky legal ground. And anybody who knew the law knew that it could be challenged. You just had to chip away, erode at it, make all these different arguments. And sooner or later, a changing court would start finding holes in it because they knew the law too. That's right. Uh, great time for another break, I think. So let's come back uh, and talk a little bit more about Roe v. Wade. Yeah? <laughs> sure, that's a good idea. I was thinking we'd change to Zeppelin's mid- <laughs> mid-episode. Led Zeppelin? I'd, I would do that, actually. All right.
Are you thirsty? Well, before you take a sip, have you stopped to think about what's in your water? Many conventional bottled waters contain PFAS, harmful substances known as forever chemicals. But you can drink water as clean as nature intended. Richard's rainwater collects 100% pure, refreshing drops of rain. Yes, it really is rain, everybody. This rain is caught clean before it hits the ground or becomes polluted with pesticides and contaminants commonly found in groundwater. Yep, Richard's rainwater is naturally pure with no need for harsh chemicals or additives. That means no added fluoride, no chlorine, no forever chemicals, no microplastics, no nothing. And you can enjoy the clean taste of Richard's still rainwater and the long-lasting cold-pressured bubbles of Richard's sparkling rainwater. Just visit richardsrainwater.com to find a retailer near you. That's richardsrainwater.com. And we even have a special offer, don't we, Josh? Yeah, text stuff to 2512-928887 and you'll get $2 off a 12-pack case of Richard's rainwater. Sip the sky. Hey there, everybody. Here's some bonus stuff you should know. This time it's about traveling to Orlando for business. Orlando has tons of places to host your conferences and meetings. Dr. Michael Edwards, CEO of Ocean Insight, said it best. Orlando is as much a business capital as an entertainment one. And when the day is done, you can kick off each evening at one of 46 Michelin-rated restaurants. What's not to love? So check out Orlando, where the possibilities for business travel are unbelievably real. Learn more at orlandoforbusiness.com. All right, game off. Let's pause here to talk more about Monopoly Go. Because in Monopoly Go, you can team up with your friends for timed tournaments where you work together to build up each other's boards. It's very nice. That's right. And the more you win together, the more awesome prizes you unlock. And there's so much to get. I'm talking about unique stickers that you can trade with friends to complete albums for big prizes, cool new playing pieces to travel the boards with, or hilarious emojis for taunting friends when you smash their buildings or heist their vaults. Plus, Monopoly Go feels new and exciting every day with constantly changing tournaments and challenges, like digging for treasure or a robot pachinko machine. And there's always new timed events that help you win big, like massive multipliers for everything you win or rent frenzies. That's right. There's always something fun to discover in Monopoly Go. So get off the bench and go download it now for free on Google Play or the App Store. Game on! You know, true love is always being excited from the first moment you see one another. And every time after that, it's taking long walks together in the summer or gazing longingly into each other's eyes and watching their tail wag when they chase a squirrel in the yard. Well, the pedigree brand asked about believing in love at first sight. And honestly, the answer is yes. Uh, as everyone knows from listening to this show, we have pulled all of our dogs off the street that Emily and I have had over the years, either right off the street or through a local shelter and working with them. And they've all become valued family members. And we think they've appreciated it, too. Yeah, Chuck, there is a pedigree loyalty survey that found that 90% of first-time dog owners report having a dog improved at least one of their relationships, and 80% of first-time dog owners are overwhelmingly more likely to have made at least one new connection as a result of getting a dog. And 95% of all dog owners say that the bond they have with their dogs is closer than they ever expected. Not a big surprise. That's true. We all know that adopting a dog can lead to a lifetime meaningful connection and real love can exist between a pet and a pet parent. You got that straight. Pedigree is committed to helping more dogs find loving homes. Opening your home to a dog can help open your heart. And Love at First Sight is closer than you think because it's available at your local dog shelter. Yeah. 
Very important point. You can find love at first sight with the Pedigree Adoption Drive from June 7th to June 9th. And the Pedigree brand will reimburse your dog adoption fees nationwide. That's right. So just visit pedigree.com slash adoption dash drive to learn more and see full terms and conditions. So, Chuck, I think you said um, that the the Roe v. Wade was um, just one of a number of cases that were making its way to the Supreme Court at, at that time, around 1970. I, I think, think there was 18, something like right? 18 cases. And the reason that America went from abortion laws it, starting in the 19th century to all of a sudden a bunch of them being challenged from different states all at once was because— in the 60s, there was so much social change. And one of the big changes is that women were getting out from under men's thumbs. They were going into the workplace. They were taking birth control pills. They were taking control of their lives in ways that they never had been before. But they saw very clearly and very early on and long before the 60s that one of the major paths to self-determination was their ability to choose whether to terminate a pregnancy or not. And that's why all at once there were like at, at least 18 cases coming to the Supreme Court that that um, sought to overturn abortion bans. That's right. Uh, and all of these cases sort of played into it. Some were actually joined to Roe. Some were decided uh, alongside Roe. Uh, one of them was John and Mary Doe. Uh, they filed a complaint because uh, – the wife, uh, Mary, well, of course, that probably wasn't her real name, right? <laughs> I don't think so. That they would have been a heck of a coincidence. Well, I mean, Mary, they couldn't use Jane anymore either, so. Oh, yeah, I guess not. They went from Jane Doe to Jane Roe to Mary Doe, mm -hmm. and maybe there would have been a Mary Roe eventually. Who knows? Maybe. Uh, but she couldn't continue to take birth control uh, pills for health reasons, and so they argued that the government was infringing on their right to have sex as a married couple without getting pregnant, basically. Um, James Halford was a Texas doctor who was arrested for violating the Texas abortion ban. That was tagged on. And then we mentioned Doe uh, versus Bolton uh, earlier. This was a Georgia case, which was really similar to Roe v. Wade. Uh, Georgia just had a bunch of kind of hoops you had to jump through uh, to get a legal abortion. And they they decided that at the same time, and we could be talking about Doe v. Bolton more. It just yeah. kind of went the other way, and we talked Roe v. Wade more. But it was the same kind of deal, equally as important. Yeah, the thing is, is I read that um, Bolton went uh, further, like way further, that the, the uh, case was – they were both published on the same day. But that in Doe v. Bolton, the, the Supreme Court essentially said, like, a woman should be able to get an abortion for basically any reason she wants. That they couldn't see any genuine reason why um, the government should be able to tell a woman that she, she couldn't terminate a pregnancy. That there just wasn't a good reason. And I guess that fact or that argument didn't come up in Roe v. Wade, but it did come up in Doe v. Bolton. And you mentioned that it was a Georgia law and that there were some hoops that, that basically um, the, the, um, the Jane Doe in that case was saying 
Um, like George is just putting up obstacles, barriers, just right. to keep me from getting an abortion. And there were a bunch. Your doctor had to agree to it in the first place. They had to go consult with two different doctors who both had to agree that you should have the abortion. Then your doctor had to go get uh, permission from a hospital review board where the abortion would be performed. If it was, um, if it was because of rape, you had to produce proof of rape proof of the rape to get an abortion. So you basically had to bring a note from the local police saying, yes, this woman was raped and and became pregnant as a result of it. Like, that's nuts in and of itself. And then also, your family or even a court attorney could block it, could could petition for you not to have the abortion, and it would come before a judge to hear whether it should proceed or not. I would say there's a lot of obstacles mixed up in there in that Georgia law. I would agree with you. Um, and that was decided, like I said, alongside uh, Roe. And in the end, uh, well, the end at the time at least, um, the Supreme Court ruled 7-2 in favor of Jane Roe, uh, January 22nd, 1973. Uh, Justice Blackman wrote the majority opinion, uh, did the same for Doe versus Bolton, also a 7-2 decision. And Byron White and William, oh, God, <laughs> William Rehnquist, Nice work. Uh, thank you very much. Um, they were uh, the ones who did not join the majority in those cases. And, you know, again, it was it was based on those Ninth and Fourteenth Amendments, and they basically said that an unwanted child can be a serious problem for both the physical and mental health of the mother uh, and the family and even the child, and the government forcing families to take, uh, to take this burden on violated the right to privacy. Um, you want to hit us with a little bit of the uh, the majority opinion? Yeah, they were saying like um, you you like it could be harmful to the woman's health, and you could diagnose that even early in pregnancy. So why should the government block that treatment from a doctor? Or um, it might force a stressful life onto a woman. Um, she might suffer psychological harm by it just from even raising a kid, especially a kid that is unwanted, which is going to have an impact on the child itself and how the child is raised. Um, they basically said like there's a and also don't forget like the stigma of unwed mothers. Like, are we going to also force the woman to get married too because she's right. uh, uh, an unwed mother? No, we're not going to do that. But there is a social stigma. And, they called out like a pretty decent handful of reasons why the government saying, no, you cannot get abortions was unfair to women and unconstitutional as a result. And, you know, a lot of that has been, um, uh, well, basically proven in what's called uh, the turnaway study, which for some reason I was calling the takeaway study. (laughs) Uh, The turnaway study is um, a longitudinal study that was performed Uh, They basically took a 1,000 women from three different groups, uh, women who sought an abortion uh, up to three weeks over the the limit uh, who Mm -hmm. were called and were denied. They're called turnaways, uh, which is where the study gets its name. Uh, Women who sought an abortion up to two weeks under the limit and did receive the abortion. And then women who received an abortion in the first trimester. And we'll talk about all the trimester stuff here in a bit too. Mm -hmm. Uh, But what the turnaway study found was – a lot of things. Um, women who were denied abortions were more likely to experience uh, complications from the end of pregnancy, um, including death, uh, more likely to stay tethered to abusive partners, very big one, mm-hmm. uh, less likely to have aspirational life plans for the coming year. Um, what else? 
Um, I mean, there's a lot of financial burden, too. Uh, being denied an abortion um, was linked to a lower credit score, a higher amount of debt, and uh, increase in the number of negative pu- public financial records like bankruptcies and evictions just from being denied an abortion. And 95% of women reported that having the abortion was the right decision over a five-year period after the procedure. That's a pretty key finding. Yeah, and that turnaway study has been like, widely lauded as a gold standard study because these researchers figured out how to create, um, you know, an experiment under natural conditions. Like the women involved in the uh, experiment, in the study, the only, essentially the only thing that differentiated them was when, if they had gone to the uh, abortion clinic just before the cutoff or just after the cutoff. That was it. Like there was a follow-up well, except the study. first trimester group. Okay. So, but those, the first two groups, like that was the only difference. Yeah. Um, there was a follow-up study that looked at the methodology uh, that they used and found that um, it, like it, analyzing the different participants' credit scores showed that they were like they virtually had the same credit scores. They were that similar economically, education-wise, um, and that when the, where they diverged was when they were either granted an abortion or turned away for an abortion. And the the, the turned away for abortion group's life like started to go downhill. The um, the receiving an abortion uh, groups uh, suffered a slight dip in mental health that that recovered, they recovered from. And then apparently over five years, the thing that they most frequently expressed uh, as an emotion or a thought about it was relief um, for having been able to to get the abortion that they'd wanted. So that's a turnaway study. Like I encourage people to go check this out and read more about it. Uh, back to Roe v. Wade, uh, one of the crucial parts of the decision was this legal term, uh, strict scrutiny. Uh, and that means that if you have a, a if it is a right that you're deciding upon that's guaranteed by the Constitution, then any restrictions on any laws that you're going to put down or put forth have to be narrowly tailored uh, to only limit the right in that case where the government thinks like we should get involved here. So that's why like the Second Amendment is in the Constitution that mm-hmm. you have the right to keep and bear arms. So any restrictions place, and this is why it's so hard to get anything passed, any, uh, on gun legislation, any restrictions on that is protected by the Second Amendment, so it has to be narrowly tailored to serve just that case. Yeah, because the the government has an inherent uh, interest in protecting human life, but they also have to protect the Second Amendment's guarantee of, uh, to bear arms, right, to, to have a gun. So they have to figure out through their laws how to, say, like prevent mass shootings without infringing on people's right to have a gun. That's why this is so hard and so pernicious, like you were saying. That's just gun rights. I mean, the abortion issue makes gun rights seem like a walk in the park. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, because in in the case of Roe v. Wade, uh, SCOTUS determined that laws restricting abortion had to be narrowly tailored um, to that state's compelling interest to protect the health of the mother. Uh, and this is where we get back kind of for, full circle to that central mess uh, with this quote. Some argue that the woman's right is absolute and that she is entitled to terminate her pregnancy at whatever time, in whatever way, and for whatever reason she alone chooses. We, uh, sorry, with this, we do not agree. Uh, and in that quote kind of sprang up this, this central mess again, which is how do we define life and how do we define where life starts? 
again, there everyone has their own opinion. Some people say from the second two cells are joined together, then that's a potential human life. Uh, other people say that is not the case. So they had to come up with what ended up being a pretty uh, initially arbitrary system of deciding this. So they invented trimesters, uh, yeah. which is, you know, months one through three, uh, four through six, and uh, seven, eight, and nine uh, during a pregnancy. And in terms of Roe v. Wade, the first trimester, uh, you could get an abortion, and that w- it was legal. And second trimester, there were restrictions uh, if your state wanted to have them. And in the third trimester, uh, you could ban an abortion outright if you wanted to in your state. And the the quote here is, that's the point where a fetus is, uh, quote, presumably has the capability of meaningful life outside the mother's womb. And what I thought when I was hearing this was, I'm surprised that hasn't been challenged because that would be the stickiest of all cases if someone really wanted to to <laughs> throw a wrench in this whole idea mm. is for a woman to say, I've just entered my seventh month and I want to have a C-section today because you're telling me that I have a viable uh, human being growing inside of me at this point. And if you don't agree with me, let's take it to court and let them decide. Huh. That person would be the most reviled person in America <laughs> for, <laughs> for trying that. But, yeah, that would definitely be a messy test case for sure. Yeah. But the, the, the problem with this trimester framework, like, like we said earlier, with quickening, with the idea of viability outside of the womb, like science doesn't know. We just don't have that information right now. And so the, the, the whole idea is kind of arbitrary because science has actually advanced by leaps and bounds in its ability to keep a baby alive way earlier than the first trimester than the third trimester which led uh, abortion anti-abortion um groups to say well wait a minute if we can do that and it's before the third trimester we should be banning abortion earlier than that just the third trimester and that led to a bunch of challenges um against Roe v Wade because again like we said it's widely considered to have been based on shaky legal foundations. So there have been challenges aplenty. But the thing is, is up to this point, the Supreme Court has always overruled those challenges to to a large degree, or at the very least, in every single case, upheld Roe v. Wade uh, and its, its ban on full bans on abortion. That's right. And uh, Planned Parenthood versus Casey is... Uh, a shining example of that. This was the 1992 case uh, where the uh, Supreme Court upheld um, almost all of a 1982 Pennsylvania law that was kind of like the Georgia law in Doe v. Bolton, where they had a, a series of obstacles. Um, I believe in this case it was spousal notice, parental consent for minors, and uh, a 24-hour waiting period. So in this case, there was not uh, – it was decided on – um, plurality, I can't believe I can say that word, um, <laughs> there was no majority that agreed to one specific verdict in this case. That's what plurality, now see, there I go. I jinxed myself. Um, that's what <laughs> that means. Substantive plurality <laughs> of Rehnquists. Oh my gosh. Um, so in this kind of case, you don't have like a majority opinion and a dissenting opinion. You have a bunch of opinions, or you know, several opinions that are mm-hmm. written with different parts agreeing with different elements, basically. 
Yeah, and that's what happened. Apparently, four of the judges wanted to overrule Roe v. Wade or overturn Roe v. Wade entirely in this case. Two wanted to uphold it entirely and just throw the Pennsylvania law out. And then three of them, um, Sandra Day O'Connor, David Souter, and Anthony Kennedy, I think all of them were appointed by conservative presidents, um, basically took the middle ground. And they said, you know, um, we're, we're just going to say the only part of that Pennsylvania law that should be struck down is, is spousal uh, notification because that is a, a onerous, undue burden. Um, but we're going to tinker with the law a little bit. And one of the things that they did, they got rid of the trimester framework and they instead said um, the, the viability of the fetus as determined by a doctor should be when abortion restrictions can begin. So you take, I mean, as, as unscientific as the trimester system was, Chuck, at the very least, it provided objective guidance for women and abortion providers. Um, they threw that out with, uh, with Casey in 1992 and replaced it with viability of a fetus. Right. And they also downgraded that strict scrutiny that we talked about, uh, that standard that came along with Roe of uh, undue burden. So um, a law could be unconstitutional if it placed a substantial, quote, substantial obstacle in the path of a woman seeking an abortion of a non-viable fetus, uh, end quote. And the long and short of what all of this did was it made it easier to put more restrictions on abortion without overturning Roe. Yeah, because um, the, the Supreme Court didn't say, and here's what an undue burden is. They, they didn't at all, which means that it's open to state legislatures to start passing more and more restrictive abortion laws to test where that boundary is. And then that's how we, we got here. Casey opened the door for that to basically say, let's find out what is an undue burden. Let's see what you got, state legislatures. And they started tripping over themselves to come up with the most um, restrictive abortion laws that they could um, and, and, and get them into the Supreme Court in the hopes of eventually reaching a court that would say, you know what, let's just, let's just forget about this whole thing. We don't think that Roe v. Wade should stand at all. And that's exactly what happened last week. Uh, of course, it was leaked earlier in the year, but officially the Dobbs case was uh, rendered last week. Uh, Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade and said it's now up to the states. Uh, many states had trigger laws in effect. Uh, many more had laws that are soon to follow. And this is just the beginning of what is to come, which is a lot of uncertainty, including uh, people like Mike Pence saying uh, – even though we have long said it should be states' right, what I really think we should do is make a federal ban. Um, people on the pro-choice side are, are obviously very upset uh, for a lot of reasons, but namely because of a few specific things, uh, first of which is uh, Brett Kavanaugh, Justices Kavanaugh, and Neil Gorsuch uh, in particular led people to believe under oath during their confirmation hearings that this was settled law and, quote, precedent upon precedent. Um, people like uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez have said um, just in the last couple of days, like, hey, that's impeachable. Uh, they were under oath. But when you look at their quotes, uh, they didn't say they would not overturn Roe. They use that very slippery confirmation language. Um, it's misleading under oath, uh, but that is is not going to end up being an impeachable offense. Mm -hmm. uh, I have the quotes, but you can you can read them. There are all kinds of articles out there. 
Yeah, when you read them, you're like, nope, they didn't. And that was a huge failure on the um, Democratic senators who couldn't bring themselves to apparently ask them directly, would you overturn Roe v. Wade? They wouldn't they answer, just, though. They asked Amy Coney Barrett. They asked Clarence Thomas. And they 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 literally didn't answer. Huh. So uh, the other thing that is uh, that uh, pro-choice, uh, the pro-choice side is pretty upset about is uh, the idea that five of these justices were nominated by presidents who lost the popular vote. Um, so we're in a situation where five of the nine justices sitting on the Supreme Court were decided by a minority of Americans voting. Um, and people like Elizabeth Warren are calling for the end of the Electoral College as a result. Uh, Man, wouldn't that be a gift? <laughs> uh, the third thing that is upsetting to the pro-choice side are uh, how two of these justices were confirmed uh, with Mitch McConnell um, not allowing the uh, Obama nomination, uh, Merrick Garland, to uh, even go before committee uh, because it was eight months before an election in an election year, uh, whereas Amy Coney Barrett was confirmed in the 35 days leading up to the election, uh, the shortest gap between a confirmation and election in U.S. history. And the third thing, or is that the fourth thing? <laughs> it's the fourth. Maybe the fourth. Is that uh, people like Elizabeth Warren are rightfully bringing up the notion that the, the Constitution was written in the, at a time when women not only had no vote, but they had no voice. <laughs> and it was written entirely by men in the 18th and 19th centuries, uh, white men who um, they believe that the Constitution is a living document that uh, and those things need to be taken into account. Like had women been able to have their hand in the Constitution, things might have been written different, differently. And, and oh, we're in man. a different world now where women do have a voice and they do yeah. have a vote. Um, but this is, you know, this is a, a decades long victory for conservatives uh, mm -hmm. that started long, long ago. Um, in a galaxy far, far away. In a galaxy away. far, far away. Like, you know, when, when Trump uh, had his list, you know, he, he he doesn't come up with a list. He gets handed a list. Uh, and this list of justices, potential justices, were handpicked uh, by the Federalist Society, an organization of conservative lawyers uh, run by, or at least the list was basically tailored by a man named uh, Leonard Leo. And, you know, I think there are people on the left that say, these justices were handpicked because they absolutely knew that they would overturn Roe, and that was always a part of the plan, and that they were coached to be as vague as possible in the confirmation hearings to uh, what people on the left say would fool people, like uh, Susan Collins and uh, <laughs> and uh, what's his name? Manchin. Manchin? Yeah, Manchin. Rehnquist. So uh, that's what has really upset people on the pro-choice side, those specific things. Uh, and that just that has nothing even to do with the, the ethics and morals of abortion even. Well, plus also there's there's some other things that people are really, really concerned about. And one is that the, the Supreme Court just basically said that Roe v. Wade was based on that right to privacy, which is a they decided was a, um, a legal fiction created by activist justices back in the 60s, um, and that they overturned that. And since 
um, not just Roe v. Wade, but also gay marriage, the ability for a married couple to access birth control, um, gay sex, uh, a, a whole bunch of different privacy issues are based on that same legal fiction, then all of those things are up for grabs too. So a lot of people are worried that this, this Supreme Court will overturn gay marriage. And all of a sudden, your marriage will be null and void if you're a gay if a gay, if you're a gay couple who was married in the United States. That's incredibly scary as well. Piled on top of you know the um, a ban on abortion essentially is what what's happening now, or at least in some states. And then, like you said, Mike Pence was calling for a federal ban, and uh, that's another thing that are making people on the pro-choice side really worried. That essentially personhood will be granted to fetuses, that some state somewhere, I would guess probably in the Midwest or the South, would come up with an abortion ban or even a resolution that they adopt as a law that says life begins at conception in the state of Oklahoma, right? And that somebody would sue them and it would go to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court would say, you know what? Oklahoma's right. Fetuses are people and they deserve all the constitutional protections under the law. Ipso facto, you could not abort any fetus anywhere at any time. There is now a federal ban on abortion entirely. That's something that's scaring um, uh, proponents of choice as well. Yeah, and, you know, just the can of worms that's been opened up now as far as enforcement and are you going to send police after people? Are you right. going to send police across state lines if people are able to get the funds to travel across state lines uh, to a state that still allows abortion? Uh, it's just the beginning of um, of a, a lot of uncertainty for a lot of people. Well, plus also, if you are a, a pro-life or you're um, anti-abortion, and you have um, a problem with the with the the decision of Roe, and say that it was judicial activism. You have to admit that what just happened in Dobbs was judicial activism. It just went the opposite way. And there's a lesson in there. Ju- judicial activism is bad on either way. We're supposed to leave it to Congress to create laws that say this is the law, not the Supreme Court to come up with laws on its own and then overturn those same very controversial laws 50 years later. That's not what's supposed to happen. It completely erodes any trust in the Supreme Court and its ability to be like the final arbiters of what's right and what's wrong in the United States. And that's what's going on right now. But, you know, that's that's just because the shoe has changed the other foot to the other foot. There were Plenty of people who live from 1973 onward with that same view of that Supreme Court yeah. and are perfectly happy with this Supreme Court. And that's the, that's the big problem, not just with this issue, but with America, I feel like today, is it's just all tit for tat, you know? Yeah. Maybe there should never be lifetime appointments. Oh, definitely not. <laughs> definitely a- <laughs> not. That is, I mean, if there's one thing that's just a no-brainer as far as um, uh, American law is concerned, lifetime appointments to the 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 panel that decides ultimately what's law and what's not in the United States is just a bad idea. Yeah, let's have term limits too while we're at it. It's too much idea. power, man. It's I don't a think lot pe- of power. I don't think people are supposed to have that much power for that long. It creates a really screwed up system yeah it definitely does all right since i said screwed up system <laughs> wait a minute wait a minute that's my part i'm always going to uh, say it though anyway since chuck said screwed up system <laughs> it's time for listener mail chime 
Uh, I'm going to end this on a lighter note uh, that might bring a smile to people's faces. Uh, hey guys, a few years ago on one of your numerous and wonderful tangents, you used the phrase, don't yuck someone's yum. I love how simple this was and summed up an ethos of being kind to people, no matter their beliefs and opinions. Uh, fast forward to now, and I've uh, used this simple saying when bringing up my two daughters who have just turned five and three as a way of teaching them manners and kindness. Uh, yesterday I had a message from my three-year-old's childminder saying that my daughter had told another child not to yuck someone's yum <laughs> and how great that was. She liked it so much, she's going to make it a saying that she used when teaching the children that she looks after going forward. Uh, it was then passed on to the parents of the other kids who all reported back that they would also be using it and passing it on. Nice. Uh, and by the way, Matt, we didn't invent that. I believe that came no. from a listener, right? Yep, definitely. So hats off to the anonymous listener who That's came right. That. Uh, some people might wish you stay on topic more. <laughs> but I'm here to tell you that even uh, your off-the-cuff comments can educate others, and you can be safe in the knowledge that you've helped instill good manners in a growing number of children in Berkshire, England. Oh, wow. I wasn't expecting that. Oh, Berkshire. He even gave me a uh, pronunciation key. And I so you up. said sheer, right? Sheer. Like yeah, beer. but I said Burke, not bark. Berkshire. So it's Berkshire, but it's spelled Berkshire. Oh, okay. You get my drift? Yeah, yeah. That's right. what I'm going to start calling upstate New York now. <laughs> Berkshires. Right. So, uh, let's go weekend in the Berkshires, everyone. Let's, let's do it. Uh, that, that's <laughs> from uh, Matt Walford. Thank you, Matt. That was very kind of you to let us know. We're glad that we're enacting really positive change in your kids' schools. And uh, that was kind. So thanks. Uh, keep it up. Uh, if you want to be like Matt and get in touch with us and tell us something kind that we helped you, uh, we love to hear that stuff. You can send us an email to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Are you thirsty? Well, Richard's rainwater is caught clean before it even hits the ground. Rain is naturally pure, so there's no need for harsh chemicals or additives. Richard's rainwater contains no chlorine, no forever chemicals, no microplastics, no nothing. Enjoy the smooth, clean taste of still rainwater or the cold-pressured bubbles of sparkling rainwater. Just visit richardsrainwater.com to find a retailer near you. That's richardsrainwater.com. And for a coupon, text STUFF to 251-292-8887 and receive $2 off a 12-pack case of Richard's Rainwater. Hey, if you haven't heard of Visible, well, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon as low as $25 a month every month, taxes and fees included. Use promo code STUFF20 to receive $20 off your first month for listening to this podcast. Switch now at Visible.com. For data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The Visible monthly rate is $25 per month. Today's episode is brought to you by Altoids because, let's face it, unraveling the mysteries of the universe is tough work. But with Altoids, your breath will be stronger than a black hole's gravitational pull, more intense than an alien abduction, and more reliable than your phone's battery during a podcast marathon. When it comes to needing intense freshness, Altoids have you covered. Altoids are stronger than your favorite conspiracy theory, more intense than the latest true crime docuseries, and more reliable than a Bigfoot sighting. They're not just mints, they're curiously strong mints. Find Altoids in the checkout aisle. Grab your tin today.
Childproofing people's homes is hard, but Duracell is making it just a bit simpler. Not only are they committed to educating parents, caregivers, and medical professionals about the importance of battery safety, they make the only lithium coin batteries with a non-toxic bitter coating to help discourage children from swallowing them. Duracell even features child secure packaging designed to avoid accidental opening. Learn more at Duracell.com slash power safely. Available on 2032, 2025, and 2016 sizes. 